I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson here on our Sunday night. This is our Amstel Gold Men and Women's Recap. If you're watching on YouTube, this is just the men's, but you can go and check out the women's YouTube recap as well. We've also got some news round up at the end on just the podcast players. That will appear on YouTube on our Clips channels, talking about Israel Startup Nation's lead out, CAV, one, two, three, maybe some more as well. Before we get into the Amstel Gold men's recap first, I want to shout out our show partner, Lacole, who truly without them, this show wouldn't be possible. We're hopefully, we're trying to up the ante. Benji and I are trying to figure out how to maybe get in the same studio for the Tour de France podcast. The support from Nicole makes that possible as well as you, the listener. I'm actually, I just copped a few Nicole base layers actually, which they got on discount at the moment. Uh, I haven't figured out how to be an influencer yet because I just bought them and I'm pretty sure you're supposed to like just ask for them. But anyway, <laughs> I just, I wanted them and ordered them and they come quickly anyway. Anyway, that's the weirdest non-influencer promotion, I think, ever. On to Amstel Gold, we had Roglic, Wapanak <laughs> in the same Arden sort of race. Who would pull for who? Uh, pretty sure they even asked Primoz that before the race. Alaphilippe, Hirschi, Woods, Impey, uh, Peacock, Kwiatkowski, Karpaz, and Tukan, and Schachman, Edith Schelling. But how the race go, Benji, on this 216K closed circuit? Many laps of Kauberg, Bemelberg, and the G-Berg. Uh, 2,500 metres climbing, 1,000 metres climbing less than last year. A flat finish. How did the race shape up in the first couple of hours? Well, firstly, are you actually calling it the G-Berg to prevent from saying Hillhammerberg? It's too late. Or am I too reading that night. wrong? Okay, okay. I'm getting self-conscious okay. about it. The <laughs> <laughs> well, the breakaway. Uh, we had a breakaway. Strongest rider in there, Loic Fliegen, in my honest opinion. He was eventually Best the strongest rider on in that group as well. Uh, pretty one of the best riders on Anton Marche, yes. And um, I think the breakaway is not really the, the focus point on this stage. We know that the action is coming from behind in this race, and we know that every single time they go through the circuit, go over the Calvary and so forth, they're going to thin out the peloton, and they're going to try and make some moves leaning towards the end of the race. And it was really obvious from the start when Movistar went to the front that Valverde wanted to do something today because uh, they had, like, a seven-man uh, train at the front at a certain point with like 100k to go. So we were like, oh, Movistar serious. But usually when they do that, they ended up dropping. So let's hope that didn't happen this time around for them. But um, yeah, they controlled the race mainly for the uh, first portions of it. And then you know, with a good 80 to 70 kilometers to go, the attack started coming. Uh, these are the outsiders like Avambala would also make a move later on. But those types of riders that need to do stuff beforehand because they can't follow the punchers on the final Kaubetic, for example. The likes of uh, a full sang and so forth would also be such riders that try sneaky attack because, well, quite simply, he doesn't really have the punchy sprint to try and uh, take it home eventually because the last portion does not have the Kaubetic in the last uh, 
17 kilometers. The last coward is at 19k to go. But anyway, a lot of those attacks, and we notice in the peloton a bit of a pattern in people that reacted to certain attacks. And we noticed that Jumbo was doing exactly what they actually said they were going to do. They said that they were going to have everybody ride throughout today. And rider by rider, that came more clear and became more clear. We had some Omen responding to attacks. We had Jonas Vingegaard responding to attacks. Very active today. Hey, we um, hey, noticed as well that Hissink was indeed pacing for Renard. We didn't know yet whether Roglic would also play the role as a, a helper yet because we weren't in that phase of the race yet that would decide that. And uh, we had a crash at the peloton then. Uh, a crash involving the likes of Mauri von Sevenand. And the guy just had a puncture just before that or some bike issue. I don't know if it was a puncture or not, but um, he already had been attacking quite a few times beforehand. So very active in the race. And Shockman was also in that crash. He uh, was much earlier to continue riding than von Sevenand. Von Sevenand uh, rode behind them. We noticed uh, Bob Jungle's probably the biggest victim of the crash. He looked to be having a, a bleeding uh, face. So let's hope that's relatively okay and that He's not getting any uh, sustaining injury from this crash. And that was a bit of a chase because Von Sevenand, like, honestly, the way we saw him for like 25 minutes pacing a peloton that is racing towards every single section of the Kaubedig, the Hilhemmerberg, and so forth. Well, it's kind of crazy because Schachmann seemed to have gotten back to the group very fairly quickly. Um, very I don't want to like point at him or anything, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to point them at him or anything, but NOS uh, motor guy said uh, that he was using an abundance of sticky bottles throughout and checking whether the jury was checking him and so forth along the way. So I guess we won't know if that's true because there's no uh, visual evidence of it yet. But uh, I guess we'll figure it out. But uh, it might become important if he plays a role towards the end of the stage, for example. But next to that, Von Sevenand also ended up catching back on after wonderful work doing so. And everybody was like, oh my God, he's so powerful today. The way he came back after such a mad, well, the crash itself, but also the comeback was pretty insane. And he ended up helping uh, helping Philippe after that as well. So real shout out to him, yeah, Mario Von so Sevenand. Good. Honestly, great ride. And uh, I think, I think race... that from that point onwards, oh, yeah. we saw that... Uh, a small group was getting away at a certain point, including Von Barl, including Seneschal. I don't know on which climb, but a few cowbacks from, from the finish line that was basically happening. And that's where we saw the deciding factor between Wout van Aert and Roglic. Who did we uh, see working for the other? Well, yeah, it was the chase group eventually catching that breakaway. Fliegen, Bernard de Wolf attacking again. Then Edith Schelling attacking with 40Ks to go on the penultimate Kauberg. And as Benji said, it was Roglic chasing with Tom Pidcock in the wheel. And that makes perfect sense. Not working as a domestique per se, but just being that first option, being more aggressive on the earlier climbs. Because if it comes down to a sprint, they'll obviously be going for Wout. Wout can stay in the wheels whilst Roglic is doing that. And yeah, that worked perfectly. Roglic was at the front quite a lot. That was clearly their, their tactic, Gumbo Visma. I think it's good to use Roglic at the front with moves because he's just better trusting his legs staying in the front 10 wheels, five wheels, than trying to time it right uh, with one great move. Schelling was really, really strong once again. He bridged to the Wolf and I think Fliegen was still in the lead. Eventually Schelling caught him, went past him and a group of eight 
with Van Servenot, who just come back, went clear with Roglic in that group. And UAE panic stations for them. They have Trenton and he or she, they were pacing like mad to catch them. Michael Björk controlling as well. I think they brought that Roglic group, that group of eight back as well. But Schelling was still up the road. We're going into the last Kalberg, Ineos and De Kearney quick step. They got Alaphilippe, the world champ, right there. Going to the last Kalberg, 19Ks to go. And Roglic dropped his chain, gone, race over. Schelling caught at the same time, Wout attacks, <laughs> attack Wout van Aert. Whoever was the, <laughs> I don't know, Benji, who was the Dutch or Belgian, uh, Belgian rather, commentator who said that Primoz should have pulled for Wout van Aert. Anyway, he be, is he, does he think karma has been delivered at this point? Because that seemed to be, I mean, Roglic just, I said it in um, message to you, I just don't remember these sort of things happening to Valverde all the time. The last Kauberg, 19Ks to go. He's got great legs, drops his chain. Now, maybe that's because Valverde <laughs> doesn't drop his chain. But, um, yeah, terrible luck for Roglic. Wild attacks. Pidcock immediately counters. Very Looked the strongest on the Kauberg. And he's bridged to by just Schachman, uh, Alaphilippe, Matthews. And there might have been a couple of – oh, how could I forget? Two more Ineos riders, Haguar, Carapaz, and Kwiatkowski. So we have three Ineos riders in this group with Valverde bridging to them. Alaphilippe, he's getting gapped on every rise, every acceleration. And you've got Wout on his own in this group, cleverly refusing to work too much. Chakun was looking to him to work. What did you think was the strategy at that point, Benji? 18Ks to go, three Ineos riders in the group, numerical advantage, but not a massive gap to a peloton behind being led by Van Servenant. What strategy did Ineos roll with then, Benji, with that numerical advantage with 19Ks or 17Ks to go? Well, it was one that I found a bit, not not weird, but one thing I didn't expect. I think when you have a numerical advantage, you want to try and benefit from that and you want to try and keep that going. But instead, we saw Pitcock attacking at a certain point a bit later and that forced a three-man group to form, and not necessarily well, the numerical first. advantage they had was gone. Yeah, as well. Uh, yeah, you're right. Kwiatkowski's attack first. They caught eventually back to uh, Kwiatkowski, which was a good move from Ineos's part. But yeah, I think that when you have a numerical advantage and you attack with Kwiatkowski and that doesn't end up working, and you know that Pitcock has beaten someone else in the sprint already in that group, then... Would it be beneficial to have more riders in the group, perhaps, so that you don't necessarily need to start playing the last two kilometers? Because if Pitcock attacks yeah. and you're able to follow, you go to a sprint anyway. Or, yeah, you can have, I thought Carapaz was going to counter when Kwiatkowski got pulled back. Or you can settle it all down, get Kwiatkowski back in the group. We've got a flat run into the finish, pace with one of them, and other riders may help you. And then you can attack later with Carapaz or Kwiatkowski, force Valvanar, Valverde, Matthew Schuckman to make hard decisions and chase in the last 10 minutes, five minutes of the race. But anyway, doesn't matter really. Pidcock counted when Kwiatkowski got caught. I don't think anyone really expected it. Gaffed everybody except Wout. Schuckman just caught back onto them. Valverde had bridge to them, but he couldn't close across. Alaphilippe was gone. Van Sevenant was trying to pace him back, and we had the trio Schachman, Wout van Aert, and Pidcock flat run into the finish, and they all work together. 
there's nothing really much to say, honestly. They just all work together. The group behind was tired. They've been doing all these 36 climbs, 37 climbs or something on this circuit, and no one had too many teammates left. Van Sevenant was tired. I think it was Israel's startup nation picking up the bulk of the work for Impi. I think Nealands was pacing. Ineos were blocking on the front with Kwiatkowski and Carapaz. The gap was about oh, fluctuated. Didn't go down down under 15 seconds, went up to 25 at one point, And we knew it was going to come down to a sprint until Shuckman in the last two and a half, three Ks, Benji, tried to attack on one last little rise, obviously not backing his sprint. Hickox just beaten Wild Van Arden, the Provence Pale sprint on Wednesday. So Shuckman's kind of like seeing what's happened to Trenton in that sprint and said, I don't want any of that. Wild Van Arden closes him immediately like, it was never going to work. Well, it was looking better than Brabantse Pale on Wednesday, and they go into the sprint. Same scenario, Benji. And did you think at any moment we were going to have Amstel 2019 that they were going to get caught from behind? I was kind of hoping so because in that group behind, we had Adam Buru ready to strike with Lutsenko and Fulsang actually pacing <laughs> for him. And uh, I was dreaming. I was dreaming it was going to happen. And uh, it didn't. So... um I'm very sad right now. My day is ruined. I completely messed up that meme. But eventually, um, I thought, well, this is exactly the situation, like you mentioned, like Brabant Seville. Did you believe that this would be a different situation? Because I thought, yeah, Pitcock is winning this. Uh, I believe. And I, thought, I also kind of well, enjoy hearing the drama in the voice of the sports commentators if Wout van Aert messes up the sprint. <laughs> It was same old, same old. This is how it played out. Wild Van gets put on the front, just like Prabhansa Pale, just like in a lot of these other sprints. The pace goes down. He, he lets the pace go down to, you know, walking pace just about. Well, actually not so bad today. Uh, the chase behind that we saw, they were about 150 metres behind in the front on camera. So as long as he kept the pace okay and after the sprint, this is at 600 metres to go, he would have been fine. So they were able to finesse a fair bit in the last K and we didn't have MVDP rampaging from behind either. So just Balabalin and Matthews. But yeah, I'm surprised, Benji, that he lets the pace go down to a low speed because that's how he gets beaten by the quote-unquote not-as-good sprinters, even though Pidcock, like, pretty dangerous sprinter he's peacock's basically like kwiatkowski 2014 version at this point seems like a similar rider anyway lavanat leads them out kicks with about 150 to go not as early as probanza pale nowhere near as early gaps peacock who's gotten second wheel gaps him off the wheel a little bit sharkman's gone Straight away, Peacock's in the draft. He disappears in the front on shock behind Wafanat once again. Pops out with about a oh, 90 meters, 80 meters to go, a little bit early. And he's coming around Wafanat to the right hand side, coming around and then surges at the end. A better bike throw than Wafanat. And we can't tell from the live images who's won. It was Wafanat in front until the last 10 meters. And then we got a side on still from like a random camera, not the photo finish. And then we saw on the NOS graphic and Wout van Aert being told by his team radio that he'd won. We haven't seen the photo finish, and that's how it stayed for a long time. We didn't see a photo finish. It seemed that Wout van Aert had been called the provisional winner. Apparently he'd been told by the jury. And um, 
it was a bit anticlimactic, Benji, because on the side-on photo, which I'm sure many of you seen, and I'll try and find it, it looked like Pidcock had at least was level. But these are notoriously bad to actually decide a photo finish from. Like they're not the photo finish. But it looked close enough that you'd want to see the actual photo finish. Um, and memes sprung up on Twitter. When did we actually see a photo finish, Benji, for the first time? It wasn't even on the TV. Yeah, it wasn't the proper one. I saw it on the TV as uh, an image on the phone of the jury commissaire. I think he Dobelara, <laughs> who is the, the VAR. I don't know if that's also named in English, the video ref for uh, for this race. So he was showing from that that the top rider on his photo was the winner with like a very small margin. And looking at that picture, it looked like Wout van Aert had won with a very tiny margin. But it's also from a camera onto a, a phone screen that has the picture on it. So I, I didn't trust my eyes on it. So I didn't want to call it either from that. And it's just, it's 2021 people. Come on. We have to figure out the winner based on a picture on the phone of a jury commissaire. Like you wouldn't be able to tell that it's a very professional sport. I'd say looking at this, like I, I don't get it. Like, in other sports, there have to be other sports out there that have a way better system than this. Like, I don't get it. I really okay, don't. Okay, so it came out that Wout had won. Britain's going absolutely insane on Twitter. They're not happy about it. Peacock's been <laughs> robbed, particularly because it took so long for the photo to come out. It took like 15, 20 minutes, I swear, to get the actual photo image shown on the broadcast. I waited for ages. We were recording the podcast late because we wanted to see it. And now, you know, conspiracy theories are abounding. We've seen the blokes deciding, pointing in the booth at who <laughs> who they thought had won. To me, <laughs> some of, a lot of the image, the first image I saw, looked like a dead heat to me in the first image I saw. But then the later images that came out, wow, it wins. Because the way the photo image works, it's the x-axis apparently is time. It's not like a normal photo of the photo finish. And so it's a photo of the finish at a point in time. Oh, no, they're all at the finish. And that's why it looks distorted apparently. And Wout was ahead of Pidcock in that image. The problem was at that point I've been shown four images. I've been shown it distorted in low res, high res, um, some images further down the line, some before the finish line, some at the finish line. None of them are labelled. Some of them are on a guy's phone, and we've been told the result before that. And I was just like, I have no confidence in what's been decided. Uh, I guess Wout's won, if that is the f- actual photo finish. But, yeah, what was your view on it, Benji? Don't say you think Peacock's won. They're gonna, they'll find where you live and deport you, mate. <laughs> No, I actually trust in, in the system. I hope you trust. Like, I hope that I can trust in the system. That's how I believe. And I, oh, I have actually already this week seen a... Uh, seen, uh, wow, okay. <laughs> we, we saw a photo finish already this week in the Women's Brabant Sapel, which oh, was also yeah. so close that it looked like the other person had won. Volering instead of Ruth Winder. Everybody was calling it Volering won, and then suddenly Ruth Winder showed up in first position. And 
on the normal camera, it looked like Fullering was in front of Ruth Winder. And eventually we saw the photo finish from a different angle because the first camera apparently wasn't aligned well. And on that one, it was a difference. And Ruth Winder was the winner eventually. But the best part about this is now we have a photo finish. Imagine if you don't have a photo finish. I'll bring you back to the Norwegian Championships last year where Bishop and Jonas oh, yeah. are sprinting <laughs> against each other in a corner <laughs> sprint over the line where there's no clue who won. And, well, they call the winner based on a picture where half of Twitter decides it's, you know, X and half of Twitter <laughs> decides it's Bishkem and nobody knew who actually won. But the jury commissaire's feeling was that Bishkem won that day and that's why he is Norwegian champion. So uh, Hiversby got, got robbed, in my opinion. But, like, I don't know, in such situations, is there an ability to call out a draw? Because they didn't have a photo for Mate, that It day. happens... I'm curious. See, Benji, unlike yourself, I am a complete degenerate. And uh, <laughs> I bet on a lot of horse racing and used to take it very, very serious, very seriously. Uh, and photo finishes are common, regular, happen all, all, every day, all the time. If you've seen, I'll put one up on the screen on YouTube. Compare that photo finish that I'm showing you. I think that's a British race. The ones in Australia are fine too. They come up, you see them two minutes after the finish. Higher resolution, clearer, you see one photo finish, not four. And, yeah, they happen all the time. And often they are different to what you sort of see in real time or on the sideline shot. That's normal. I'm used to that as well. You know, just because Pidcock looks ahead on the random side angle shot or just like Brabantipaya women's, you can't trust that. But... Do I trust, A, the technology that it can go down to a margin of error enough that we can confidently say, well, for not one? No, I don't think the technology seems to be good enough um, just given the resolution and how close they say it was, what, four one-thousandth of a second, one of the closest races ever. Uh, in horse racing, they're called dead heats pretty often. Uh, it's not like a one every 10 year thing. It happens pretty often to have dead heats. There's been dead heats in cycling too. I think like U23 World Champs, Michael Matthews was involved in or something ages ago. There was dead heat back then. Pretty common. And do I think they could, they should call Wout as the winner based on the finish line photo they have? Yes. But, well, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it makes a great conspiracy. <laughs> conspiracy. I think that's why we had to call. Is the title of this podcast, Stop the Count, because there's uh, a lot of people that think Peacock got robbed and it should have at least been a dead heat. Yeah, um, but let's be real. I think that everybody's kind of wrong here. I think that the rest is talking about Wout Fennard winning. You have the Brits saying that Pitcock won, but I clearly saw Aramburu pass his last wheel just oh, on the stop. line and clearly is the winner <laughs> of this Amstel Gold race. Like, he's the real winner. Let's make that a hashtag. Aramburu won Amstel. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's enough of the photo finish. Everyone can leave their comments down below what they think. I think the problem is, Benji, if it comes out two minutes after the finish, like in horse racing, you know, it's close, comes out, two minutes, one image, here's Wild Ahead, bang, Wild wins. We don't have this discussion. It's the, it's the time delay. It's the different things. It's your man with the, I've already said, with the iPhone at an angle being like, look, Wild won. 
<laughs> what is this? Kids under five soccer? This sounds still a gold race. <laughs> Man. Anyway, you think Peacock made any mistakes, Benji? I think, listen, to get that close against Wafana in a sprint, it's hard to say a guy made any mistakes. Maybe. I think the difference today is not a mistake. While it was fresher in the sprint, his initial kick seemed to be a lot stronger than at the end of Brabantse Pale. And on the flat, when Wout drops his full wop bomb, Pitcock is going to get gapped. Like he's not going to be able to do the same absolute power over three, four seconds. And that's why he there's nothing he could seemingly do unless he anticipates it to beat Wout Van Aert in the sprint. Kwiatkowski used to tail off and Harrell Becker, he'd lead, um, not lead, go behind and then attack Sagan early. I think Peacock did the right thing, having Wout lead him out. Any other tactical things, Benji? I mean, Jumbo Visma winning with Primoz having that mechanical, they got to still be pretty happy. About seven not crashed. Oh, yeah, as well. Anything else tactically interesting from this race? Tactically, it's difficult to uh, to talk about, but I think the only thing that I have left to discuss is that we're leaning towards the flesh wallon and Alaphilippe's not looking good. Ah, yes. I believe Valverde is going to win on flesh wallon. Excuse me? Balabalin. I'd love I to fully, see I it. believe that Valverde is going to win. He looked good, man. Alejandro, he looked good yeah. today. Yeah, that bridge really to the Peacock group was mad. Um, I don't know. I think I'd like to see – is Peacock doing flesh? I don't know. Cosnefro will be at flesh, so <laughs> I don't see how anyone beats the goat at Cosnefro. I'll have highlights of flesh as well. Obviously got highlights of the men's and women's highlights tomorrow as well on the main channel. But, yeah, that was Amstel Gold, men's recap. The course, Benji, quick 30 seconds. Nah, not no good. I think that the course really worked well in the women's race, and I think it – also worked relatively well in the men's race, but I think that uh, it could have all just come together if they waited a tiny bit longer to, uh, yeah, if they stopped pacing a tiny bit earlier in the first three-man group. And I think that it could have been more epic if it was closer between them and the chasing group. But outside of that, I think that throughout the history of Amstel, I've always had the feeling that the run-in for Amstel is not the most entertaining. And then suddenly we had 2019 where it opened up early with attacks of Alaphilippe and Fulsang early on. And Van der Poel also attacking before that. And eventually that all coming together in the end. So I think 2019 was an exception to the rule. I'm exceeding the 30-second rule as well, but I don't care. I um, actually didn't mind it for once. The Amstel Gold Race circuit, it's... It's easier for beginner viewers, for mainstream viewers that watch for the first time or the first few times to know which climbs are the next ones. And if they know it's circuit, then they're knowing, yeah, we have one Calabatic left, we have one of that left. Yeah, I think that it's got a less steep learning curve for new viewers. Yep, I think the race got lucky, sort of that Pigtock was so aggressive on that last Cowberg following the Wafflin Art move. And if it hadn't been for him really putting the foot down, it could have been a pretty large group in the last 15Ks going into the finish. And maybe there would have been flying attacks. Late flyers could be more exciting, but I have a feeling it would have been uh, just a large group coming together. Yep, that was our men's 
and still gold recap. We hope you enjoyed it and now stay tuned for the women's recap. If you're watching on YouTube, welcome to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. If you're continuing on from the men's race recap, this is the women's Amstel Gold Race recap, 115.5 kilometers from the Volkenberg, where it starts to the Berg in Terblit. And there's three climbs. So in Netherlands at the moment, they have to do a closed circuit. That's why the women's race finished at about 7.45 p.m. Brisbane time and before Benji gets up in Europe time. And they do three main climbs, just like the men's race, same circuit, the Gerlemerberg, Bermelberg, and the Kalberg. Kalberg, you obviously know from 2012 World Champs, normal Amstel. And, yeah, there's not as much climbing as you'd normally expect in Amstel Gold Race. Same for the men, same for the women's winner of the last edition. Didn't happen last year. Happened in 2019. Kasha Neviadoma. Uh, so, skipped last year. But now we've got Voss here. Changeovers. Van der Bregen, Van Vleuten and Movistar. People changing teams. All the favourites. ELB and the leader of the Women's World Tour. Uh, but Benji, you were watching before TV broadcast started. What happened early in the race with about 100 k's to go? The benefit of a parkour like this means that there's a lot of attrition already throughout the parkour itself. You see a lot of attacks every single circuit that they pass through. And that's also why I kind of like this, because you can have a, a big move at the start that has a huge group that gets away while the favorites are perhaps not really looking at it too much and then it turns out there's riders from every team in there and that was a, a thing that happened today we had at roughly 100k to go a 23 women group that launched off including the likes of lucinda Brown for uh trek segafredo we had pretty much one rider for every team that matters except for like movistar in there so yeah it's a strong group it was a group that was seen as dangerous because everybody on social media was like oh, this gap is growing. Oh, one minute, one minute 15. This is actually getting dangerous because obviously the likes of Van Vleuten and Sefov didn't react to this yet because it's 100k to go, but somebody had to react in the back and it only happened a good 18 kilometers later once that group had still a significant gap. It was Van der Bregen who upped the pace on the, on the second Kalberg of the day. She actually ended up splitting that really? second group into pieces. And yeah, very early. But it's also kind of necessary due to the fact that this group had Lucinda Brandt from Trek Sigafedo as potentially the most dangerous rider in there. So SD Works had to do something. And it seems like their go-to option was using Anna van der Breggen to do so. Perhaps the choice there was related to the fact that she was ill a week and a half ago and she wasn't sure whether she would make it to the start of the Zamsel Gold Race. And perhaps she's trying to get into it with a role that is not necessarily the one they trust on for the victory. And thus is on a domestic duty today more than she was actually a, a leader for the team. I think that that might be the reason because otherwise we wouldn't see Anna van der Breggen taking over control so early on in the race. Is that also roughly what you have in mind for the reason there? Yeah. I think Demi following, she'd be a leader. If she was on Park Hotel Volkenberg still, she would be their out and out leader. So ST Works are blessed with her as well as if it's a slower race. Chantal van der Broek Black. Uh, I think Grace Brown, judging from the Core Voss photos I've got, which you should see on screen if you're watching on YouTube, Grace Brown marked that Anna van der Breggen move. So she was looking really strong early and will come to the fore 
later in the race. But yeah, you want to continue on, Benji? Yes, uh, that group eventually uh, came back together with some uh, people that dropped earlier on. And this group also ended up catching that front group with the likes of a Faulkner for Tipco doing a lot of the work to try and catch back that uh, that front group of 23. It was 18 left or something, it wasn't the full 23 in the end when they got caught. But all in all, with 60k to go, everything is relatively back together. An 80 rider pack, roughly. And those next few circuits were attacks left and right with the likes of uh, a Jackson doing a lot of attacking, Royakers attacking, Brown attacking. And it wasn't really that anything was sticking. There were reactions every single time. And perhaps a two-women group would form and then it would be caught a bit later. So, yeah. In general, the race was relatively under control and it would really start to kick open again with a good, I think, 35 kilometers to go on the Kauberg. Is that where you think uh, the race yeah. really uh, exploded? Well, you had Brown ahead and Van Vleuten, like, Brown had attacked before. She looked good. We know she's good from Liège last year and she's been so strong this year. She win? she win a race yet this year, Benji? Or I can't remember, but um, Browns look so Brown good. Won, uh, was it Dwarves? No. Yeah. No, Van Vleuten won Dwarves. Depana. That's it. Yeah, I knew she'd won a race. Yeah. Van Vleuten, she would attack early on the Cowberg before even the steepest section. She did that on this ascent with about 35Ks to go, and she would do so as well without her team having led her out to the base, setting it single file, um, but anyway, her attack did create a lot of problems because Anna van der Breggen dropped, maybe given what Benji's mentioned about her sickness, not a big surprise. She was not that far back at the start of the Kauberg, but yeah, that Van Vleuten move countering Ruyakas, basically it showed who had the legs today, but it didn't cause a decisive split. Then they had this sort of undulating, false flat, nasty section after the Kauberg, exposed as well, continuing attacks. Benji might have already mentioned Audrey called on Rago had attacked. A couple of times Trek were keen to make the race difficult. And then Grace Brown attacked again with 27Ks to go, marked by Ruyakas, but Brown looked much the stronger and no one was really chasing. And as Benji's mentioned, she's won the Panna. She chased Lizzie Dagen nearly down in Liège last year, and I feel like she won Trapanche Pale last year, Benji, as well. Um, she definitely was on back-to-back Arden podiums last year and can go long. No one was chasing her. And were you surprised, Benji, with SD Works having multiple riders in the group and Trek had at least four or three or four in the group that they let Brown had such a long leash um, for even – over 20 kilometers. Yeah, I find having Grace Brown on a solo ride or even a dual ride still, that that is a dangerous thing to happen. And if she gets a gap of like 30 seconds, then I'm starting to wonder why they don't kick in earlier because now they're eventually having to kick in anyway because otherwise this race is lost for their team once they, well, simply don't have a rider in the front. That's Liv and Trek you have up there. No, wait. I remember yes, change, sorry. <laughs> so bike so exchange and lift were no in the, front in the comments. Trek was not. As they were. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, 
as they were had those four riders. You're right. Moan Pasio already showing the entire day that she was up there. Not necessarily the causality of moves, but she was always there when she uh, responded to groups and was always in those elite groups that formed throughout the parkour. So she was looking good. And following also still there. Van der Breggen was not there, as you mentioned. So it, the thing is, they have the riders and they chose to do that later than expected. I would have expected them to respond earlier towards uh, Grace Brown. That's quite simple as that. And it was yeah. really uh, on the Kaubach itself with 19k to go where the reaction started actually happening, I think. They, they were facing a tiny yep. bit beforehand with Trek taking the majority of the work on themselves. And Mavi Garcia ended up setting a pretty high pace at the start of that Calberg. Moment Pasio took over, and as the work started helping out from that point onwards, they started setting a pace. And then second attack, or oh, probably the third, there was another one in there. In <laughs> yeah, AVV again. Or somewhere, but Annemiek van Vleuten. Yeah, go ahead. Well, this is what I mentioned in my Perbanchi um, Pale men's video recap that when you have breaks, in these races, these one-day races, whether it's Ardennes or even like Adventure Pale, which is like an Arden light or cross-cobble classic, sometimes it's good to have someone like Grace Brown up the road. And I'm surprised Movistar didn't pace hard before that Cowberg, the penultimate Cowberg, that 19Ks to go, to bring the gap to something bridgeable for Van Vleuten. But it wasn't. It was 30 seconds. That's not going to be bridgeable on the Cowberg alone for AVV. And unless Grace Brown completely cracks, which she wasn't looking like doing. So that's AVV basically putting in effort for nothing. All the favourites were right on her wheel. Kasha Neviadoma was right there. Magnaldi tried to attack from the peloton. We finished the Cowberg. They have put 15 seconds into her, 15Ks to go. Brown on the descent, Benji, I think she was stronger than Royakas on the uphill as well, or just particularly on the flap, but on the descents, she put a lot of time into Royakas and she lost the wheel and that was it. I think that's she's one of the most efficient riders in the peloton solo on this sort of undulating terrain. 10Ks to go, 30 seconds for Brown. We've still got another circuit. We've got the Cowberg to do before the finish. And I think Trek Benji were trying to call SD Works bluff. I think they were trying to make them, they say, you're the strongest team, you pace, you do the work. Um, why should we have to do the work? And we haven't mentioned her name yet. She's in this group the whole time. She'd been looking good on the Cowberg. Mariana Voss, no teammates for sure, but she's just sitting in this group, sitting pretty. Trek and SD works, all the responsibility, no pressure on her to chase anything down. And um, ELB's in that group too, and the Ks are ticking down. So for someone like ELB, when are you going to attack if you're going to catch Brown really late? Trek keep working, as Ben said, and then we hit the last Cowberg. 2.5Ks to go. Grace Brown closed down. How did you see that last Cowberg again, Benji? Was it rinse and repeat for Van Vleuten? Just kind of, I don't know thrashing about at the start, not even the steep section. Yeah, it was really surprising that group came together to the wheel of, of Grace Brown right at the bottom. And that makes yeah. it beautiful because that reminds us of uh, of races that come together towards the end and then start exploding in the final few kilometers. And that option was here. We saw the last meters before the Kalberg 
Van Vleuten moving up and making that move, bridging the, the five meters that were left to Grace Brown's wheel. And she just hammered it. And when I say hammered it, like she made that move from the single m- meter at the bottom of the scowbed. Yeah. And she kept, kept pedaling. And the others in her wheel, uh, not necessarily in her wheel, there were a few gaps opening up behind. The entire group was falling apart. It was basically 1v1v1 for everybody. And it was, I think, Cassian Iodoma, the winner of last year's edition, that was one of the riders that was best at responding to Von Vleuten there. And we also had ELB, Elisa Longoborghini, in a photo of wheel at that moment. Uther Plutwig and Savov nowhere near the front. Mariano Voss was already in a good position as well, like you mentioned. I think, yes, in front of Elisa Longoborghini at that point. Yes. But the thing about Voss is we know that she has this kick, but an entire length of a cowbell versus the yeah. punchers that can do more climby stuff is difficult. So she has to go pretty hard at the bottom to try and follow, and then she has to try and reduce the damages. A bit like a Michael Matthews would do on the men's edition, for example, where he would need to try and follow the attacks a lot, and once the real punchers come out on top, then he needs to try and reduce the damages to try and kind of crawl back towards the end of the Kauberg on the false flat section towards the end. And I think on this Kauberg, the gap was getting larger, and the first riders, Annemiek van Vleuten, was getting in trouble. She wasn't looking that bright anymore, a good 75% into the Kauberg, and it was Nio Adoma that pushed forward past van Vleuten and actually hammered it, dropped van Vleuten, Longoborghini ended up passing Voss, ended up passing Van Vleuten, and eventually ha- we had Niodoma at the top, having a good 5 meters, 10 meters on Longoborghini that crawled back very strongly towards her, and we had a two-women group at the front of the race, and everybody behind kind of formed and bolstered into a, a chasing group at the top, and that's with roughly yeah. a kilometer and a half to go. That's right. Kilometer and a half to go, just... Remind ourselves who are in these groups exactly. Nuvia Doma and Longoborghini, the ones who are the strongest on the climb, but not the quickest sprinters ahead. You've got a tired AVV, SD Works with multiple riders behind, as well as Paladin there, Mavi Garcia. And they got following for the sprint SD Works, but Mariana Voss is in that group. Needs no introduction. She's in that group. She's going to be the quickest if it comes back together. Navidoma gets to the top, does a short pull, notices that ELB is with her, flicks her arm. ELB says, no, I'm too tired, and then attacks her. So from 1,500, now she's basically pulling on her own. Navidoma is having to close her down, and she looked cooked. It was tiring her out. took her ages to close her down, but she managed to do it eventually, getting into the last 750 meters, 800 meters. The gap is now five seconds to the group behind. We've got a flat finish to Amstel Gold Race. Nivyadoma goes to the is pulling a little bit, does a pull, flicks ELB, and ELB says no, refuses to pull at all. We've got Mariana Voss in the group behind. And it gets to the point where Nivyadoma is pleading with her. She's on the side of ELB. She's like, I'm not going to ride the whole way to the finish. I will pull, but you can't just sit on, expect to sit on the whole way. You're wearing ELB, the leader of the Women's World Tour, points ranking jersey. Like you're not someone I can just destroy in the sprint if I lead you out. And yeah, ELB 
basically completely scuppers them. She, we'll talk about it in a second, but yeah, 500 meters to go. You can see what's happening. SD Works are closing them down. Nuviodoma is basically freaking out justifiably being like what the hell they're going to catch us now starts to half pull but it's too late sd works pulls it back easily with about 300 meters to go they've got volering third wheel elb slides back to that group and then sprints from the front of it with like 250 to go <laughs> makes no sense spring from the front of that group being like no nah, no nah, beating just Nuviodoma head to head would be too easy let me sprint against 10 women Voss, she goes, so ELB drifts to the left-hand side of the road. Voss slips into the left-hand side, gets her slipstream, kicks out of it. If you see it on the overhead, absolutely destroys everybody with her initial kick. And it was only close because Voss posted up Philippe style very early and following came back <laughs> to her wheel. But she still beat her. She still beat her by uh, a wheel full wheel but it looked closer because the speed differential with Voss posting up but uh what are your thoughts on that finish Benji particularly ELB's decision making I think the main factor here is that we understand why she wouldn't pace in the first place in the sense that if for example you're in a group with Niwadoma who is arguably on paper a stronger sprinter not by much but a stronger sprinter she won the sprint 1v1 versus von Blöten last year but the factor there is that it's also a short gap. So you either pace a tiny bit and and then start start sitting in the second wheel with a good 700 meters to go. You can't do that from 1.4k out, knowing that the gap is so little. And additionally, if you attack that rider, that you literally say to, nah, I, I'm going to sit in the wheel. You say, no, I'm not going to take over. And then I'm going to attack a second later on the right side of the road. And then when you're caught, you're like, no, I'm not pacing. How naive are you? Yeah, how naive are you? Like, this ain't gonna work. 99% of the people that you're in the group with, after you get attacked, I would never pace with that person anymore. I would be like, oh, do it yourself now. Like, <laughs> at this point, uh, if you don't want to pace, then Maybe I'm not going to pace either. Like, she was willing to work 50-50, even after that. Yeah, but uh, that's the thing, like, even... With that work, with her doing alone, then Longo Borghini would have ended up trying to swamp her in the end. So she knows that if it's not 50-50, it's not going to be a fair finish here. And if if I keep pacing with Longo Borghini in my wheel, I would never do it. But from Longo Borghini's standpoint, I don't get the naivety where she thought after attacking New Adoma that New Adoma would still be interested in doing all the work alone. That's just yeah. not realistic. Like... I, I don't know anyone that would do that. Like, I had a counterexample <laughs> in a men's edition of Milano Sanremo this year where, where Søren Kralnersen was pacing with Steven and it ended up causing Steven to be able to also take the race. But that's different because Steven didn't attack Søren Kralnersen there. And yeah, then it's expected that, yeah, I just don't get it. In the end, I just don't get it. Like, yeah. Well, especially for SKA, coming second in MSR is a massive result. And he knew even if he didn't pace, he would probably get beaten by Sturvin in the sprint. So he was just like, I want a podium spot. ELB wants to win. And even if you think, and I don't think this, I don't think 
Naviodoma has shown to be a particularly good sprinter this year. Van Vleuten destroyed her in Dwarves Duel of London and despite Naviodoma having a perfect draft right on her wheel for 200 metres, Naviodoma got beaten by multiple bike lengths. ELB beat her by 15 bike lengths in the finish here and judging from how hard it was for Naviodoma to come back to her after her attack at 1500, I think ELB should have had a pretty good tell that she was stronger than Naviodoma. So all she had to do was just offer her a little bit of work and not sit up completely. They would have been that group. It's so I could see it happening in real time. If you let that group yeah. come back and your ELB, you lose 99.5% of the time. 99, maybe more. Voss, I mean, you may have heard of her before. <laughs> yeah. uh, from a reduced bunch, she's going to fucking destroy you. And she did exactly that. She won so easily that she nearly lost because she posted up with 50 metres to go because she gapped everyone so badly. And if you're ELB in that group, you're not the one that might beat her. And then she let out the sprint from 200 to make no sense. So why not take, even if you have no confidence in your sprint, the 30% chance of beating Naviodoma in the sprint, the 25% chance. I think it's more than that. Personally, I think she would have had 60 to 70% chance of beating her. And worst case, she comes second. Um, so what she did made no sense. It was irrational. It wasn't like clever gamesmanship that could have worked for her. I think it's worse than full sung and Alpha Leap at Amstel Gold 2019 because MVP was closing that gap. It was such a big gap. They didn't really know accurate time checks. Whereas here, they knew SD Works had multiple riders and they were pacing just behind. They knew, or should have known, Voss is getting brought to you by SD Works sitting in the wheels. And that's why after the race, apparently, Quintetaz Zonavel on Twitter, Longaborgi up. Oh, Naviodoma said to Longaborghini, fuck, Elisa, why? And uh, maybe that we should make the title of this uh, video on YouTube, that Benji. But, yeah, any last thoughts on Trek, ELB? Is this something you've seen in other races this year that surprised you, some weird tactics? Yeah, I think we uh, mentioned here in Dwevelgem that we were surprised how they uh, went ahead and formed an echelon, and then once they had the numerical upper hand in that echelon, they didn't ride the echelon, causing Longaborghini to eventually go solo and remove their numerical advantage on the competition there while the sprint is well behind that group. And that was a tactical mistake from my opinion, or perhaps a mistake in the echelon. We don't know what the real cause is there, but it's not ideal there. And I think in the Tour of Flanders, there was another example that I brought up, but I can't think of it right now anymore. It was ELB. One thing I did want to mention is... uh, after the, she refused to chase yeah, yeah. AVV, she sat on the whole time and then helped yeah. in the last three Ks. And we were like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but um, the final thing I want to bring up is that I feel like Vollering's sprint is getting better. And I think we've noticed it over the last, like, not only this year, but also towards the end of last year, where it was slowly getting better. And right now she she sprinted really strongly in the sprints she was in fifth sixth position and she basically maneuvered through the peloton through the well elite group not really a peloton anymore and the way she got out of that position and ended up having such a speed to come next to uh ariana voss that's not a non-existent name but mariana voss well really impressive and i think that this is just we've spoken about it so much last year that volering is becoming such a very strong all-round rider and they were basically waiting for her to win the the big race and 
from my viewpoint right now, I believe that that big raise is coming this week. Big shout. Well, particularly with AVDB not looking as good. But here's the final results, the full top 10. Voss first, Vollering second, Van Vleuten third. Netherlands lock out the podium. Sprat fourth, Paladin fifth, Mavi Garcia sixth, Ludwig seventh, Longobor Guinea eighth, Mulman ninth, and Neviadoma tenth. Big shame for Neviadoma. She deserved at least another podium. She was the strongest on the Cowberg and, um, yeah, was willing to race. I think bike exchange with Spratt behind, maybe Brown attacked too early and was too active because Spratt is never winning the sprint against anyone, unfortunately. Uh, so she'd need to go clear on the Cowberg and then stay away, I feel like. Yeah, but Brown, speaking of Brown, this is her results this year, Benji. Australian national champs, second in both the road race and the ITT, eighth in Omloop, two, second in Danilith Nakata Corsa, First in Brugge de Pana, 22nd at Hen Vavelhem when they were riding for Sarah Roy. Sixth at Dwarves Dour, third at Tour of Flanders. Like, she's – that's incredibly – the only rider probably with better results this year are AVV, and that's only in the last couple of weeks, and Voss because Voss has seventh at Strade, second at Trofeo Alfredo Binder, third at GP Ottigen, one Hen Vavelhem, 12th at Flanders, and one today. So, yeah. I mean, any last thoughts on this race, Benji? How it will affect, maybe expand on what you were saying about uh, Vollering for later in the Ardennes? Well, I think just in total that Vollering is is becoming so all-round. We know that she was, uh, was it second or third on on Fledge Wallon last year, so she's really fitting for that parkour. But if she is already showing that she's getting better at the sprinting part of things, then she can also end up winning, for example, liege Baston liege where it has hills and then results in a bit of a sprint at the end between a few people, unless they have a solo rider at the front of the race. We also saw her attack solo quite a few times this year, this season already. And I just think that it's just a matter of time before she wins something. And on paper... Fledge Wallon is the most fitting now that Van der Breggen is not on the on the table as a head favorite for that one. But um yeah, will they will they decide to give her a chance anyway? Because it would be eight times in a row. I don't know. But all in all, I think this parkour uh, is honestly more enjoyable than the normal Amstel Gold Race parkour. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I didn't get that. I don't know. Could you try again? Well, my watch just thought I was speaking to, to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not editing that out, Benji, because your watch is saying, Benji, I'm not sure about that take. Um, maybe for the women's race, Benji, we'll see. <laughs> men's race hasn't happened yet because it's got a lot less climbing, the men's race. I think the women's race, it was fine. But, yeah, I don't know about that for the men's race. But let us know if you're watching on YouTube or on Twitter, if you're watching or listening on podcast players. What did you think about – ELB's decision-making, do you think Trek have thrown away some podiums this year in the Cobble Classics and now in Amstel? I think they definitely have. You know, Dwarz Door and Ken Favelham, I think one top 10 result with Van Dyke, 10th at Dwarz Door when they rode for her, no one in top 10 at Ken Favelham. So, yeah, some questionable stuff there. We'd love to hear your thoughts about that and what you thought about that. this women's race. Mariana Voss is as good as she's ever been. She's flying. Yumbo Visma got to be very happy with her and 
we got the men's race starting in a couple of hours. Maybe they're hoping for a lockout of the top step with Wafanat or maybe Roglic later, uh, but we'll see, even though you're probably listening to this in reverse order. Uh, but that's all from the women's Amstel Gold. Let's talk, Benji, now about Mark Cavendish, a tour of Turkey. People were <laughs> demanding a second, a third emergency podcast. That's not how emergency podcast works. You know, we said there'd be an emergency if you won a race. He won a race. We did the emergency podcast. You all liked it. But then he won the day after and the day after that, and then he didn't win the mountaintop finish. So probably washed at this point. But you want to talk, Benji, about – yeah, you want to talk about those sprints and maybe the Israel Startup Nation lead-out train and talk about your hashtag. Is it still ironic? Is it still a joke or are you taking it seriously yet? So as a bit of context, I, uh, I jokingly put in a, in the first victory tweet about cash, Cav at the start of this week in the tour of Turkey, I had a hashtag, uh, hashtag Cav to the tour. And, um, well, it unironically started picking up by other people. And I saw the humor in that. So I kept on doing it every single time he won, but I personally think that he shouldn't go to the tour de France. Quite simple as that. I'm uh, going to uh, take it down a level. He had strong sprints here. He's beating the likes of a Greipel, who's arguably not at his top level right now. His watts are strong, but we know that when it comes to the positioning and so forth, and when it comes to the kick compared to the riders that are now beating the worldwide sprinters like a Caleb Ewan, like a Sam Bennett, Greipel ain't going to do it. And we also look at the other competition in Jasper Philipson, who in the first two stages was nowhere when it comes to his positioning. And towards the third one, he was starting to pop up towards the front and actually compete properly in these sprints. And we've seen Jasper Philipson this season already from the start of the season, not really at the form where he, for example, was in the Vuelta last year, where he won that hill stage in, in proper fashion, where he played a role in actual proper sprints. We know that he's better at the rougher sprint stages than the pure flat ones. The flat ones is where his teammate Merlier would come in in that team, but yeah. he's not really uh, available in Turkey right now. But um, <laughs> when it comes to Philipson, we saw in Schelderpreis that he ended up winning. And that was, as you can see on, uh, on Landrin's video, his highlights video, um, because the Alpacin train basically put him in the perfect position compared to the other sprinters who weren't in the perfect position leading into the sprint. So he didn't need as much to end up winning from that position than a Sam Bennett would, who was basically uh, locked in for a, a solid part of the start of the sprint. And I believe that Philipson was strong there, but I also believe that Bennett wasn't at his strongest there. We saw Bennett form much more impressive tricks already this season. I think that Philipson right now is getting better. He already won two stages as well in the Tour of Turkey. And I would take every single victory in this Tour of Turkey with a pinch of salt. Even the Philipson ones, I believe that one of which was a bend in the last 200 meters, which caused Cavendish to be having to take the long way around, around other sprinters and eventually end up losing the race, likely because of that. And I think that all in all, Cavendish winning these sprint stages is great. It's great for his for his mental form, his 
just the trust of esteem towards him and the other way around, the fact that they now trust each other more and will probably give him a chance in more less vulnerable races. And I think that when it comes to Cavendish, I just don't believe that he's going to the tour quite simply because he doesn't fit in the team. There's no way in hell you're going to leave someone from the lead-out train of Bennett at home. There's no way in hell they're going to leave Alaphilippe at home. There's no way in hell they're going to leave support for Alaphilippe. You leave Bennett at home, mate. I'm waiting for it. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm not going to that extreme here. (laughs) Would be funny, but I don't see it happening. You you started the hashtag, and we were talking. This is after the first win. After the first win, me and Benji said, how long, I remember I said to you, how long until somewhere writes a non-erotic article saying, should the Coney Quickstep take Mark Cavendish to the Tour de France? And it was that day, that day or the day after someone wrote it and we were like, <laughs> stop, please, stop. Like <laughs> if Jakob Moretzko won a couple of flat stages, you know, I know Tour of Turkey is a two-pro race, but the starless man. It's uh, it's not great. I know Philipson is there. If it was Moliere, I'd be like, Oof. if he'd beaten Moliere yeah. three times, I'd be like, that's serious. But yeah, I know it's decline and stuff. I'm not sure Cavs like back back, but it's good to see him winning. Um, what about Benji? One Cav win at the Tour. Is bigger than Sam Bennett green jersey and three stage wins. That's a fact, sponsor wise. I can tell you that. Yep. Listen, our emergency podcast YouTube video on the LRCP YouTube channel, which has less than 10K subs, unless you go and subscribe now to get it to 10K, go and do it right now. It got nearly the same amount of views <laughs> as my Paranese full stage one or two highlight videos. Or st- yeah, the one Sam Bennett one, stage one, with official footage on like a 100K sub channel because Cavendish is just a way bigger name, way more marketable. So should they take him to the tour? No. But I think they got to give him some more opportunities in some bigger races in uh, some more traditional European races just to see how he would go. Who knows? You know, like Groenewegen, where's he going to be? Ewan Bennett. They'll be tied up at the tour. Juan Fernando will be tied after the tour. Like, there might not be really strong sprint fields sent to a lot of races. Like, Bink Bank Tour. What if he came third and shelled the place? What if there's no strong guys at Bink Bank? Pedersen's not there or something. So, do you think he's as strong as someone like Pedersen in a sprint now? I think it depends on the kind of sprint then, whether it's raining or not. But I think that Cavendish has the benefit of. When he's in someone's will, he has the kick to come out of it. And I think that Peterson yeah. is the pure rider that can launch a sprint early and keep it up till the line. But if Cavendish is literally in his wheel for like the first 100 meters of that sprint, then I don't see Peterson gapping Cavendish. And then he could come past. But if it's a 1v1 sprint next to each other, then Peterson takes the upper hand for me because Cav cannot benefit from the draft of other riders in that situation so it's all situational but i agree with your initial yeah. standpoint on uh the factor of what would give a sponsor like the Koenig more exposure everyone except ireland rooting for cavendish in a sprint 
would probably get a lot of exposure. And even if it fails the first sprint, second sprint, third sprint, even if it fails the entire thing, the anticipation is what drives it. You know, yeah. the anticipation of Cav winning is what led to so many people watching the Tour of Turkey that usually don't watch the Tour of Turkey. <laughs> I usually don't watch <laughs> the Tour of Turkey. And I loved it. <laughs> and yeah, you, you're special. Um, Bennett winning two stages. I don't think he's going to win three or four. It could be wrong. I could be very wrong here. I don't think he's going to win green because Van Aert is able to go for green this year. So that reduces that yeah, exposure as well. Theoretically. And theoretically, on paper, this is kind of the situation that we're looking at right now. And I believe that the anticipation of Cavendish potentially winning a Tour de France stage would be more exposure for a sponsor than Bennett winning two, two sprints. I was going to say mountain stage, but that ain't happening. <laughs> two sprint stages. Um, yeah, what I about- think that's true. But um, Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. So we're not taking Cav to the Tour. Either of us aren't. Memes aside, Benji and I are not taking Cav to the Tour uh, just from a pure sporting perspective. You can't do it. You're going to have Bennett. You just you have to take Bennett to the Tour. And we'll give Cav some opportunities elsewhere. Yeah. Moving on to another sprinter at the Tour of Turkey, Benji, that I want to talk about and his lead-out train, Israel Startup Nation and Andre Greipel now – we have said, both you and I, his snap doesn't look like it's there. Yasser Philipson, when he sprinted in the, mm, the first stage Cav one, he gapped Greipel off the wheel just straight off when he initially kicked and then Greipel had to claw him back. I looked at his power data. His power curve, because some people are saying his power's not not changed. It's the same as 2016. I'm not sure that is true. I think I've looked at, his peaks generally are not the same, not hitting 1850, 1830 like he did then. It's more 1680, 1700. Power meter might have changed between then and now too, and he's not able to hit 1550 for 15 seconds, 1500 for 15 seconds. It's more 1380, 1400. Now, he's still doing enough power to win sprints. That's still good enough power to win sprints, particularly Turkey with the right lead out. Do you think the problem, if you had to assign a, a proportion, Benji, between Greipel and his lead-out train, who's more responsible at the moment for the poor results? Because sometimes he's not getting even in the top three, top four in a very weak sprint field. I don't think Greipel is at the level of winning. And I think that it's also the type of sprinter that he is that is making that more difficult for him. Cavendish has it relatively easier because he's got that kick from behind the wheel and Greipel needs to do it on pure muscle and doesn't have that extra accelerative kick towards a rider like Cavendish. This is the perfect like comparison because it's so different the way they sprint. It's also the fact that Greipel is just a much larger rider, so can't benefit from draft as much. But even if he has a draft, again, he doesn't have the acceleration to kick out of a wheel like that and overtake someone in the last 100 meters of a, of a sprint stage. It's just... I think that the lead-out train for Greipel has been pretty great so far. They've had a few stages where they weren't perfect. I think it was the... Was it the first Cav win? I think it was where Alperson took over in the last portion and um, there was the uh, Rick Zabel, uh lead-out man for Greipel that had to crawl back towards uh, 
towards the Alpacin sprint train, and then and Chimulai did a short well, but then you're in fourth position, basically. Yeah, like yeah, Chimulai been... a few years ago was, yeah. in my opinion, a better lead out, and now he's become a bit worse than that. When it comes to Rick Zobel, I'm curious whether we've spoken about it before. What if we put Zobel in the last position of that sprint and we try and go for him in the likes of a Tour of Turkey? I bet he can perhaps get the same results as Greipel did and perhaps even better. Like, I don't want to say that it's a bad choice to have Greipel as sprinter, but I think that I would trust Zobel just as much to get results in the Tour of Turkey in the same way that Greipel is right now. Yeah, that's what you mentioned about Chimalai, Benji. Like, he's won three World Tour races. He won Pyrenees Stage 5 six years ago at 25 years old. He's then won the opening Catalonia stage, the hilly one with then a flat finish at Bawani. He's won another Catalonia stage. He's won Trofeo La Guelia. He's a good rider, fourth at Eschborn Frankfurt in 2019. 2020, he then moved – well, he was on Israel Cycling Academy in 2019, but he's moved to – ISU 2020, no great results, to be honest. He couple of top one top five in the Giro, one top five at Tirreno. I don't know. You look at their lead out with Zabel and Chimalai. On paper, it should be overpowered for the Tour of Turkey. Those guys should be blowing everyone out of the water because Zabel and Chimalai are good enough themselves to be coming in the top three in this sprint. So I guess the fact that they're not putting Greipel so far ahead of the other riders and dropping him off with 150 suggests to me that the lead-out isn't working too well either. Like Chimelay, short pull, but as Benji said, Cavendish hasn't had the best leader. Cavendish hasn't had perfect positioning for all these wins. He's been having to do it himself. He gets dropped off, you know, fifth wheel, sixth wheel by Hodge in the last K, but then he has to do it himself, surf wheels. So, yeah, you can say the Israel sub-nation lead-out has got a lot to improve on, a lot to work on, but if Greipel was good enough, he still would be coming up there and probably snagging a win at Turkey. And if he's not getting wins here, I just don't see him turning it around for even bigger races. Uh, but I hope he gets back. I like Greipel. I'd love to see him clock up a couple of wins. He's contracted for a year or two more, so I hope he does keep winning here and there. Uh, but, yeah, that's our thoughts on Greipel and Israel's startup nation at the moment. I think another topic we wanted to talk about, Benji, related to Israel's startup nation, Greipel's lead out, sprints, and the Tour of Turkey is Alex Dowsett's post on Twitter or Instagram. Can't remember where the original one was. He put it on Twitter, whether it might have been the screenshot because of the character limit. Um, He's since deleted it. I can't remember the exact text, Benji, or if you've got screenshots. Basically, the content of the post was a bit of a, yeah, a, bit of a call out towards a writer from another team. I won't be calling out the rider as well. I won't be saying his name, even though I know who it is and on which team, because it's kind of obvious to to uh, kind of look into the post and see who he, he was talking about that stage. But all in all, when a stage starts, the breakaway gets away and the sprinter teams move to the front of the peloton. And when they're like, okay, this group is large enough or this group is not dangerous, then they decide to take up the space at the front of the peloton. We've seen this quite a few times in the Tour de France before as well. And they take up the entire width of the 
of the peloton at the front. They slow down the pace on purpose to make sure that nobody else can really attack. And that slowing down causes the gap towards the front group to expand very quickly to make sure that it's difficult for people to bridge. So they can then take their piss balls at the side of the road a bit later and not worry about someone opening up a, a, a pure battle to catch the breakaway again. But the thing is, these are kind of the exact words of Alex Dowsett. Um Today, one particular rider was very keen to be in the breakaway, so keen he took matters into his own hands and did something I've never seen. I won't name names, but this was a rider of World Tour. And he continued onwards and started talking about how they did exactly what I just said. Whilst front row slowing things down, this particular rider decided to shove me as hard as he could from behind with his hands so I would lurch towards out of the line so as to make a gap for himself to jump through and go and join the breakaway. Apparently he tried to he tried this move with one of the most well-respected riders in the peloton earlier also. No clue who that rider is. I reacted fast and anchored on the brake, so he basically brake-checked the guy to keep him blocked and then proceeded to tell him quite impolitely and in a raised voice that I would make it my personal goal of the day to ensure that he would not feature in the breakaway. Um, he then said what he did was dangerous, and I'm sure there's a UCI rule about physically pushing another rider. He's right in that, but wait for it. He said it actually made sense for him to be in the breakaway. I he asked if he could slip through and join the break, we'd have allowed him to. And eventually, he also said uh, would become four up to the road. No, it would become four people up the road in the breakaway, and his ambitions were to go for the intermediate sprints. From this, you can basically guess which rider it is. But um, he also ended up explaining how they slow it down in the first place. And so as a sprint team, we're very involved from the start to make sure the right riders in the day's breakaway go clear, small enough that we can chase it down and making sure there's no other sprint team members present there. And then they block. We physically slow right down to 20 kilometers an hour. So anyone that tries to jump has a huge gap to bridge. And when I say we block the road, I mean there isn't an inch for a rider to squeeze past. Now, Alex, I'm afraid there's a UCI rule against this, that you cannot obstruct anyone and delay another rider on purpose like that. Because otherwise, you'd have the Koenig Quickstep on the Mur de Huy and Flesh Wallon, just have four riders at the front of the peloton, close off the road, and have the fifth rider of them in front of them just ride off to victory. And then, yeah, block everybody. It's it's allowed anyway. Well, they but that's not how it works. Drugs. And it's, yeah, yeah. But it's toxic culture when it comes to the sprint teams. We've seen it so much. And this is not to call out Alex. He's a, He seems like a pretty nice guy. But just in general, this is toxic behavior. And the way he decides to call out a rider for pushing him out of the way, doing something against the UCI rules in the process, but basically saying, admitting that he's part of the uh, the sprinter's team mafia, as many people call it, where they decide who goes in the break and then block the road completely and slow it down and basically break that UCI rule of obstructing a rider as well. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of not okay either. So, I uh, yeah, he got a lot of backlash for it on social media, and I'm kind of I'm not part trolling. of that not backlash, but I did call it out. But in a respectful way, there's a lot of people that threw him under the bus and went straight cancel no. culture on him for this. But I'm well, not with that either. But I mean, yeah, I looked at the replies. I didn't see too many people trolling him. It seems a lot of people giving their honest opinion, disagreeing. I'm a bit disappointed he deleted it. To be honest, 
Um, I think if that is your view that what the Astana did, Astana Rada did was really dangerous, then you know stand behind it. I've spoken to other people that were there at the front of that race at the time, and they were like, it was really sketchy what that rider did, and I'm sure that is the case. It's probably true. That being said, um, I thought it was bullshit the way Alpacin and Quickstep were bullying the Astana riders at Tour of Flanders with 260Ks to go, putting them in the gutter when they were trying to move up the side, trying to get in the break. Like those guys suck at the Cobble Classics. They're not a threat to you. They're not going to make the break any more difficult to bring back. Like you're just bullying people basically. And I think the irony is that Benji mentioned this toxic culture. Israel, those guys have probably learnt this from when they go to the Tour de France and then Bora and De Koenig tell them to fuck off and go to the back of the peloton and say, you aren't allowed at the front here. This is where the big boys are. Um, and that's kind of what happens. It's And then they go to Tour of Turkey and they're like, oh, we're the big boys. You know, We can throw a weight around. I think that's what people didn't like, and especially because Greipel wasn't winning as well. Maybe that's where the nasty comments came from. But, yeah, I think he should have left it up and then posted a new tweet saying I've changed my mind or actually, no, actually that's my view. I still disagree with you all. Thanks for your input. Love a healthy discussion, but no, I still think you're all wrong. Like I think people didn't like the tone was very sanctimonious and condescending and it completely seemed to be ignoring the fact that he was also engaging in something that's against the rules and also a little bit toxic like people don't have to ask your permission to get in a break if the guy tries to bridge and you get onto his wheel totally fine you're entitled to do that you close him down with your legs you don't let him get into the break and then you start soft pedaling but going at 20ks an hour people might be like oh that's not that slow in the flat in a 150 man peloton that is so slow that's borderline rubbing your brakes to be going 20Ks now, that's ridiculously slow. And, um, yeah, I think it was interesting to see. I was surprised there was so much backlash. Maybe it's because Benji got in there with his opinion about it. Do you think this will change, Benji? Do you think this is a rule that will ever get enforced um, no. or should they may as well get rid of it? I think, they, yeah, the, the rule itself probably still helps in certain situations to prevent it from happening on the Mur de Wee, for example, in the final of Flesh Wallon. But the fact that it's not televised at the start of the race for many of the races is also part of the reason why a lot of teams probably continue doing it. Because, well, UCI won't care too much about enforcing things if stuff is not televised. Well, if you end up posting on Twitter that you do it, then it's not very ideal because then you know you're going to get backlash for it. It's behavior that has been called out quite a few times in the past by pro-conti riders and conti riders mainly when they get a wild card towards a welter event they complain a lot about this and i think we uh saw a post about this from Yanni brajkovic where i don't know if it's to this specific situation but that there's sometimes the behavior happening in the peloton where welter teams feel a bit too much elitist compared to pro conti and conti riders and perhaps on some situations it's deserving in the sense that those riders are causing a bit of danger in uh, a concept in a peloton but in this type of situation i i don't think that's the case and i think that yeah it's a bit of toxic behavior and bullying towards riders that are not on on teams that have a chance of winning it in a sprint then 
shouldn't be happening, but I don't think the rule is ever going to be enforced for this situation. But I did enjoy calling it out because I found it unfair in the first place. And yeah, that's kind of why I did that. But in the yeah. end, I think that on paper, I respect Dowsey completely eventually. It's not like I, I see him as an all-out villain after this post. While a lot of people did actually go full cancel culture in the comments on him. And I, I, I don't really know if that's a good way to do this because you're basically isolating Dowsett here just because he admitted it compared to the 10 other sprinting teams that have done it already in World Tour races this season, but don't get called out for it because it's not on camera and people don't know about it. And yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what to think about that, but I yeah. think it's just something that is worth calling out. I don't think it's going to change. So yeah, I don't know. Do you think it's because he... It's obviously because he put it out there. Like, do you think Kasha Naviodoma should go onto Twitter today and say Elisa Longo-Borghini raced like a, like a rat and um, I'm glad she didn't win and I had no idea what she was thinking <laughs> and repeat what she said at the finish? And because she'd be right if she said that, but do you think she should put that on Twitter because it's basically criticising a colleague? Would you do that? If you were, because um, it was obvious we could figure out who it was. If you're in your job, Benji, would you tweet about a colleague? Or when I was in my corporate job, I know it's not corporate jobs, it's sports, but it, they are colleagues. Would you tweet about someone and like be like, there's a woman in my office about five foot eight, uh, you know, and basically not name <laughs> her, but make it pretty obvious who it was and then criticize her? I think, yeah, it's. It's not that common to do that sort of thing, actually, when you're still in it. That's going to end our segment on Alex Dowsett and uh, the tweet. <laughs> Lots of food for thought. Let us know in the comments down below what you thought of it, and we'll see you later. Ciao.